This evening I'd like to talk about the power of patience, the power of patience. And every year I take uh, some time of self-retreat and uh, usually I go far away to be far away from my to-do list. But this year I went to the Forest Refuge to do a period of time, a month of time for my own retreat. And through the years of my practice, uh, I found that there are levels and levels of impatience, especially with regard to practice, that I found that I've had to really pay attention to, to be able to see through it, to not get uh, so enwrapped in the impatience that comes up in the mind with regard to my own practice. I learn more and more every year what a humble yet powerful virtue this is of patience. It's absolutely necessary during the beginning, the middle, and the end of any of our endeavors, especially the spiritual path, I think, because that's where we can have a lot of unconscious expectations about our practice, what we think we should be achieving or what we think we should be letting go of. So of course, it's also essential in our day-to-day -day living. So I'd like to give some examples of both of those areas of patience and impatience in our practice, in our spiritual path, in our home life. It's such an altruistic quality, and somehow we don't at least I don't hear enough about it. There's always, you know, something about karma or right view or dependent origination or the five aggregates or compassion, all those wonderful things. But this sort of lowly, in a way, not very much spoken of virtuous quality needs to be put out in the foreground more often and more visible and more and more reminders to us. It's such a highly respected quality in so many, if not all, of the wholesome spiritual paths that we know of in, in the world today and probably beyond. But in the West, it's sometimes regarded as a weakness. So I'd like to introduce uh, this talk tonight with a quote from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. When it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble, that doesn't mean that one should be defeated or overcome. The very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind, in heart. And also you want to remain calm. In that atmosphere of calm, you can develop wisdom. If you lose patience, if your mind flounders by emotions, then you've lost the power to see clearly. But if you are patient from a basis of altruism, then you don't have to lose strength of mind. You can even gain strength. So, so important, but so um, kind of in the background all the time. I mean, I, I know from my own life, 
uh, I heard from my mother a lot, please be patient, please be patient in her Filipino language. In fact, my birth name is Patience. And <laughs> she would ask me to be true to my name, you know, in, in kind of her Filipino slang way of saying it. And so I lived through knowing that to be true, that I had a lot of things in my life to be patient with, patient about, especially myself. Sedao Upandita, our Burmese teacher from uh, the Theravadan tradition, he's a monk, and he's well known as a teacher who encourages effort balanced effort, of course, in what he thinks is balance and what I paid attention to, and which has gotten me a long ways in my practice. But to many people, it, it's so energetic, so I, I just have to acknowledge that. It requires a moment-to-moment -moment continuity of mindfulness, and he absolutely has that requirement at the top of his list. It's continuity, compassion, and clarity. Those are the three things he requires of us in our practice, continuity, clarity, and compassion. But sometimes, whenever he sensed that in some way there was some imbalance in my practice, when any of us were wanting something other than what was being offered from the karmic results of that moment, wanting anything other than what is actually occurring in the practice, in the present moment, he would chant in Pali, patience is the highest virtue. It's an often chanted, I, I really can't remember the whole line in Pali. Kanti paramam tapo titika. Yeah, Steve just reminded me. Kanti paramam. Patience is the highest paramam, paramat, the highest virtue. And through the 27 years that I've known him and he's been my teacher, I found him to be very, very sensitive to energy. You could be walking in the room, you could be walking very slowly, and you could look on the outside actually very mindful but he would know that your mind was way ahead of your body. And he would, he would tell you before you even got to the place where you made your traditional three bows and uh, then went ahead telling about your practice, he would say, the path to freedom is paved with patience. And it would slow you down as you were walking towards him and it would really make your mind or help you have your mind be right in tune with your body or your body be more in tune with your mind. In other words, really be right there in the practice, in that moment. So during my recent retreat at the Forest Refuge, uh, that's the hermitage connected to the Insight Meditation Society Retreat Center in Barrie, Massachusetts, it took me a little while to realize that I needed to pause and reflect on the power of patience because I really felt that that was happening, that I could be walking slowly, but the mind was ahead. It was wanting, expecting the, the practice to be different. 
In the first few days, of course there's sleepiness, of course there's restlessness. It happens to the best of us, to those who have been on the path a long, long time. And just to be patient with that. But I wanted it to not be that way. I wanted it to be clear and calm right away, and it wasn't doing that. So I had to stop myself and actually acknowledge that subtle and sometimes not so subtle experience of impatience arising in the mind. Kind of that feeling that one is leaning forward in, and really not balanced in the present moment. Kind of the expecting mind that could, the tip of the iceberg could just be seen. But when we pause, we can see more deeply into the waters of the mind and see just how big impatience can be. I realized that uh, and made some time to pause to actually look at my practice and to look back and see how it's been over the years and say, this is what happens in the beginning of a retreat. And of course, there's going to be feelings of drowsiness and restlessness and of course there's going to want to be uh, wanting it to be different, impatience. And so just bringing moments of mindfulness to those experiences is all that needed to happen. Moments of comparing, judging, analyzing, criticizing the practice. All of this is associated with impatience. And one, when one is patient, it's sort of all of those things seem to either melt away or burn away just with the power of patience that's accompanying mindfulness. After I talked about this, I gave this talk um, just recently in May at the Forest Refuge when I was teaching there for the month. And I talked about my experiences during the month month between January and February when I was there as a yogi. And someone came in and said, I have the best quote for you. And of course, I'm always wanting good quotes, you know. Don't avalanche me, though. <laughs> um, and she said, I learned from one of Achan Buddhadasa's books, she thought, this quote, patience is a supreme incinerator. <laughs> it's like put it in there and it just wipes it out. And you can see that if you, if you take that to heart, that's really true. You put all those things, you know, comparing, judging, analyzing, noticing them with mindfulness, but just having patience accompany that mindfulness, which it normally would anyway, because mindfulness brings forth all the wholesome qualities of mind. When one wholesome quality is there, it's said that all the other 24 wholesome qualities are there. 24? So they come together. It's like a family. So when we, we bring patients to the foreground in sort of intentionally, consciously, it really helps us with our practice. It just takes one word. Not the, you know, patience with the pointing, you're not doing it right, finger but patience with a compassionate tone that says, we can have some patience here. It's, 
it's not really that hard to do. So those expectations uh, of having our practice deliver results that are not yet ready to be delivered, um, that can really get in the way, expectations. Many times in the practice when I would go to report to Sayadawji Upandita, he would ask in just, maybe just one word, say, expecting mind, expecting mind, just to check if it's there. And just really checking it out and answering yes, of course, you know, truthfully knowing it was there and bringing that light touch of mindfulness, but that clarity to it. So during that time of my own retreat, I needed to settle back and to let go of any agenda. Just, I know we can have an intention to do this, but it always, it doesn't always let go of itself. But to at least know that there is an agenda. Maybe we came into this retreat thinking, we'll get over the three days of the sloth and torpor and then our practice will really begin or whatever you came in with, see if we can let it go sooner than later. It will really help our practice to be conscious of any agenda that we may have had. So the path to freedom is paved with patience. That means all along the way, looking and seeing if there is impatience there. And sometimes just seeing that moment of impatience can bring in that patience because when impatience is being noticed, of course, that's mindfulness. Mindfulness is a wholesome state of mind and it brings the other wholesome states of mind forward. And if we can remember to bring in in patience, in particular, make a habit pattern of doing that, then it will come forth more quickly, more readily. It will be that um, default setting of the mind that can take its uh, place more readily. So during that month, I remember being in, in one of the walking rooms and it was coming up again like, you know, this a masquerading as one thing or another, you know, just, no, this is just an aspiration, but underneath, you know, it was really like, grabbing towards something that wasn't happening in the future. So I took some time and I said, what, what thought, what, is Steve spoke about right view last night, what right view can be brought forth, what wisdom can be brought forth so that patience can also be brought forth with kind of a gravitas that it wasn't known as it wasn't known before. And so, of course, you know, the power of understanding causes and conditions, understanding karma. And this unfolding process has a lot to do with causes and conditions and the unfolding of karma. So I came to a a certain grouping of words that I called my mantra, that every time there was some impatience that would come up, I would call forth this little mantra, this little phrase that would say something in one form or another. This unfolding process has its own pace. It has its own process. And in that moment, 
it can be any number of conditions in that process that I don't have any control of over. But what I can know is that if the practice brings mindfulness to the foreground, brings as many of the wholesome qualities as possible to the foreground, metta, loving kindness when needed, patience, compassion when needed, then that's what I can do. I can put forth the energy into those habit patterns and they will play out as future habit patterns because we're making them a habit in our practice. So this unfolding process is happening in its own natural way, its own pace. It has its own mysterious process. Patience is the antidote to striving. And it's what we've been, Steve and I have been trying to put forth and weave into our teachings here, is uh, not to strive with the practice, but to let it unfold, to have when we need to an open sense of our practice, to not try to cling to any result or try to see anything in particular, to just be mindful in its continuity moment to moment. Patience has no aim, really, except to be with the present moment. And we can't make that a strong agenda either, because if we cling to wanting that to happen, it's just like throwing a monkey wrench into our practice. It allows us to be with the unfolding, changing present moment just as it is, instead of wishing it to be any different. If we could really take a look at the energy and the thoughts that go on in our mind regarding how we think it should be, how it was before, and comparing it with that, how we were comparing our practice to somebody else's practice, how we imagine something to be in the future, how much energy and space that takes up in the mind. It's huge when we're honest with ourselves. It's really huge and it kind of, if we allow it to kind of wake us up to say, okay, just being with this moment. Not in that way that we're trying to grab it, but in that way where we're just opening to it, just gently touching it with that clarity of that, that comes from continuity, that compassion that comes with being gently with the present moment. Because when, when the mind is with the present moment, it has an incredible vantage view, vantage point, that can see everything with much more clarity. It can bring fresh understandings simply from arising, that being with that arising, passing, and changing, dissolving present moment. Sure, we can see the impermanence in that moment, but there are, there are degrees of seeing impermanence that are available to us when the present moment can really be open to. Degrees and intensities and um, beautiful views of the present moment that really change our whole life, that really help us to 
to view life with a lot more preciousness. So I made my practice really simple at that time. Many of you may or may not know that at the Forest Refuge, there are certain few times that we, we go to the hall where we're asked to be in the hall, but it's not very often. Um, it, Dharma talks are given twice a week. You get two, two interviews during the week, and, and I wasn't reporting to anyone. I was just doing my own practice. And uh, I really had to make sure that I was, I knew how I needed to be held um, in a group, because being in a group really does help me. So I made times of being in the hall, and I made times of doing the chanting. I made times when I was really showed up and very sincere about doing my walking practice, but not tight. If I felt that I really couldn't do one of those things, then I just didn't do it. That's um, in that type of practice that's offered there. So I took the proper nourishment, the proper rest, the proper fresh air that's required when we're doing practice, and I just made my practice be three important things. Continuity, clarity, which comes from the continuity, and having compassion for myself and others because the compassion for myself helped me to be gentle. The compassion for others helped me to just see everybody with more patience. If something was happening that was, of course, you know, I didn't, that annoyed me, or that I could feel that it, it should have, they should have done it in a different way, I could have more softness around it. And it brought in a lot more patience. So through the times of the day, through sleepiness and tiredness, the beginning of retreat, the middle of retreat, and through the end of retreat, I really made patience something that was a constant uh, support to me, along with the other ones that I just spoke about. And remembering that this practice is unfolding in its natural way, just like things blossom and grow around us and fall in their natural way. So at that time in May, uh, just last month actually, uh, it was, I, I'm not sure if it was a late spring or an early spring, but I just saw, as you all see around here in these parts, you see the ferns kind of unfurling. And you can't, you, you can't go to them and, and say, no, you know, do it faster. You can't push that in a fern. You can't, I saw the blossom, the blossoms from the crabapple trees start to come out. You know, they have these bright, bright pink blossoms in that part of the world, probably here too. And every day they would come out at their own pace, depending on the sunshine, depending on how much uh, water there was, how much rain there was, depending on many unknown factors. And all we could do was just observe and just notice how it was all unfolding. And so I love this uh, quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. When you, that's why it's so good to practice in nature because somehow we get it without the trees talking to us, 
without the flowers saying any words of wisdom, but we get it from nature that it has its own pace, it, it has its own way of unfolding. Her secret is patience. It gives us that endurance that maintains an, an inner sense of kind of respect for how things are unfolding in their own timing. It's that kind of respect for the way things are, this endurance, this inner quality of endurance, that silent resolve to keep our hearts moving in the direction of our highest aspirations without grasping towards it, but just knowing that the direction that our spiritual practice is headed towards is in that direction. Maybe we don't know exactly what we'll find there, but it's in the direction of more and more freedom from greed, hatred, delusion, and more and more experiences of their opposites, of loving kindness, of generosity, of compassion, of equanimity, and all of those wonderful, beautiful qualities of mind. So no matter what the timing may be, we can have endurance for that. It requires a long, enduring mind, this path of practice. It's not, for me, and I know not everyone here has a kind of understanding or belief or grasp of future births, but for me, it's, it's not about just this lifetime. It's about much longer than that. And um, so doing the best I can in this life. And uh, sometimes I know I feel like I'm not doing the best I can and I need more patience. But even watching that, even noticing that. So it was interesting to learn that Actually, Steve told me the story that during the time of the Buddha, he laid down certain rules for the bhikkhus, the, those who became uh, monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. We lay down these certain rules like we do here in retreat in order to protect our practice. So the rules are not laid down just because we want to be strict or we want to deprive anyone of joy or happiness, but we have certain guidelines to support inner quietude, to support ways in which we're not distracting ourselves, nor are we distracting others. So we're keeping it as simple as we can, so that there's a sense of safety and ease in our practice. Many people in retreat, because they feel a sense of safety, they don't feel things are going too fast, or they don't see things that are, you know, unusual to them, that we can expect certain things to go on in a certain way here in retreat. Very deep experiences come out of that quietude. Feelings of grief that they may not have had for a long, long time. Remembering things that were hard, are hard to remember because we're so distracted in our daily life. Remembering pain in the body that we had pain in the mind, emotional pain, that is able to be held here in the safety because of certain uh, ways that we're holding our practice. 
This is so that transformation and purification can be possible for us here. So the Buddha laid down these rules. Um, there were so many of them because when something came up, he thought, okay, we'll find a way to support ease uh, of well-being with a certain way of conduct. So he laid down what he called the Vinaya, the code of conduct, little by little. In the beginning, before he laid that out, the only rule was patience. So that's why, you know, there comes this, uh, this uh, phrase that patience is the highest virtue because of all the qualities that he could have chosen, he chose patience as the highest quality. Of course, during the time of the Buddha, many monks joined in and acted inconsiderately or unmindfully, mind you, even that happens among those who are robed. And more rules of conduct were created until this day, there are 227 rules of conduct. It's interesting, Steve has a book, I think it's in our library, about why that rule was made. And it's really interesting to read that. Anyway, that's beside the point. But they weren't willy-nilly. They came up because of something that was really true and that happened during that day. But still, even though there are 227 rules, patience is a supreme code of conduct. And the Buddha always puts that at the top. I've read this story uh, quite a few times, uh, so I've been here 20 times. I've probably read it at least seven times when I've given this talk. This story was in the sports page of the Honolulu Advertiser. It was a long time ago, and it's a wonderful Dharma teaching. So I want to uh, tell you this story about a young boy who traveled to Japan to a school of a famous martial artist. A young boy traveled across Japan to this famous martial artist. When he arrived at the dojo, he was given an audience by the teacher, the sensei. What do you wish from me? The master asked. I wish to be your student and become the finest karateka in the land. Karateka probably means martial artist. How long must I study? Ten years at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as all the other students? Twenty years, said the master. What if I practice day and night with all my effort? Thirty years, was the master's reply. How is it that each time I say I will work harder, you tell me it will take longer? The answer is clear, said the teacher. When one eye is fixed upon the destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. So you know that one eye on the destination is grasping. You can see that. And we don't have our full presence in this moment. Two feet on the ground, seeing what's happening here. So by this story, we learn that a full and complete presence gives us more clarity and a broader view to find the way and to respond skillfully to what we find along the way. 
So in the early years of practice for me, during the 70s, I would hear the teachings. And I would just feel this sense of being at home, which I think many of you have told me you felt when you first heard the teachings or heard it a few times and felt like, that really sounds true. It's not just practical, but it's kind of like it has a, a sense of higher practicality. So I didn't fully understand everything I heard, and I had a lot of questions during that time. And I was so, in retrospect, I could say I was so greedy for the Dharma. I wanted more than my mind can, could actually take in. You know, all of you probably, even the younger ones, you have these books where you connect the dots, you know, and then you finally connect enough dots and you see the picture. Sometimes it just takes three dots and you know, oh, I know what that picture is. Or sometimes you have to make a lot of dots, you know, connect a lot to find out what it is. Well, I wanted the dots to come more quickly. I couldn't find, I couldn't see the picture, what it was all about, but I knew that it was something really, really important in my life. And I had a good bit of impatience and greed for the Dharma. There is such a thing as greed for the Dharma. You know, we can find it when, when we tell a poem and there are so many notes on the board. Can I have that poem? I want that poem. And it's really a practice when I felt that to just notice the greed in the mind for wanting it. And then what happens? It goes in a folder and I never see it again. <laughs> so just noticing that, that's not bad. I mean, sometimes we need those things to remind ourselves, but we can see even for the Dharma, we have greed, that kind of wanting that can't let go sometimes. Suzuki Roshi says that it's when your practice is rather greedy that you become discouraged with it because we want more than the mind can actually um, chew on, can actually find a way to connect the dots with. And it takes time for that to happen. I remember once going to Manindra telling him that feeling of being discouraged. This was long ago in, in the 70s. And I could see how, in retrospect, one insignificant thought a molehill became a mountain. And that thought was something like, I should be making more progress in my practice. That thought gathered a lot of steam, a lot of energy, and a lot more similar thoughts around it, like, I'm not a good yogi. Everybody else comparing myself, everybody else is doing better. You know, the person next to me can sit an hour and a half, and I can only sit 45 minutes that kind of thing. I have sat an hour and a half in total delusion, you know? <laughs> so, or not total, but a lot of not knowing what's going on. So sitting an hour and a half doesn't mean a thing a lot of times. So gathering similar uh, thoughts about self-deprecation caused a huge overwhelm, a huge really untrue story about myself. When we look at the stories that build up around a sense of self, we can look back and honestly see that it's not all that true. You know, we're, we're making a mountain out of a molehill. 
in fact, when I look back, I can see that most of the time, like all of you, we're ardent in our practice. We do the best we can. We're the best yogis we can be. And I went to Manindra at that time, and I did say things like, I'm not a good yogi. I can't do this practice. I want to go home. I've said that various times in my practice. And so it's a teacher's job. It's why we're here to say, you're doing OK. You're doing better than you think. You're, you are doing what needs to be done. So it was a huge crisis for me at that time. And one of the first things that Manindra commented to me is, is kind of with a little wry smile on his face, he said, oh, this is just yogi mind, yogi mind. Steve's uh, definition of yogi mind is unforgettable, he says. And see if this can attune to you. The magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. <laughs> How many times have we done that? Just with little things. The magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. How we think, oh my god, did I write the wrong thing in the note? You know, <laughs> or, or I put the wrong person's name there. Somebody said that. We got to get it right. I've done the th same things myself. So he pointed out that I was expecting practice to be different than it actually was truly unfolding. The true nature is unfolding in its own way. And our job is just to be with it, with continuity. Expecting it to be otherwise is a cause for impatience to arise. So Steve last night or this morning talked about we can see why, or maybe we can investigate why things are unfolding the way they are. And he's not talking about investigating something psychologically or saying, oh, it's because this is the way I was raised or this has happened when I was in school and this is what was going on around me when I was growing up. It's by noticing the causes and conditions in a dharmic way. You know how, for example, this is a great example, how expecting mind causes impatience to arise how the wanting mind can cause aversion to arise because we, don't, we want it to be different, but it's this way. So just seeing the whys of our practice in terms of the Dharma, not psychologically, or just see if you can see it in terms of the Dharma, the causes and conditions for this moment to be this way. So much later, in a more refined place of practice, I felt like there was a holding pattern in my practice. This, this was years later. And I remembered Suzuki Roshi talking about constancy, you know, having this sense of constancy and not um, just not trying to be so much in the past of how we thought it should be before, imagining how we think it should be, but just the constancy, short moments many times that kind of constancy, not needing to go any further than that. Just this moment, then this moment, then this moment. So that helped. And then I went to Manindra and said, there's been a long time, nothing new in the practice, 
a long time. Just granted, there was there was a lot of equanimity going on. Not very much equanimity. Not very much reactivity. Just things would arise at the sense doors, and they would just come and go very quickly, very quickly. Not very much new happening. And so Manindra would say, I remember him the first time I brought that up, because this happened a few times before the practice went on, um, at least two, two major times I can remember, that this first time Manindra just leaned back in his chair where we were in Maui, and he said, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree that I couldn't push it. You know, I, I couldn't just pull the fruit from the tree before it had enough nourishment from the ground, from the air, from waters, that it really needed the nourishment of that constant constancy. When the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. We tend to try to pull our petals open faster than they're naturally ready to. And we don't see the beauty of the unfolding. We don't really get to see the beautiful flower or the fruit that can come from those flowers. All we see is just like a lot of petals on the ground. We expect that to taste the fruit before anything has ripened enough. So we do this to ourselves. And, and I remember this story because I'm remembering how um, this brings to the point in how we do this to others, too. We are in our home life. We're expecting others to be other than they are, to kind of unfold in a way that we demand them to unfold. And, uh, or we want their life to be different than it really is unfolding. And this makes it hard for ourselves. It makes it hard for the other person because they can feel that we're really not accepting their unfolding in the way it's naturally happening. So it does make it hard on, on the others too, even though, of course, we want something what we think is better for them. But in the long run, it doesn't help. I remembered that long ago, someone very close to me um, I wanted the Dharma to open up to that person faster than it was. And he said to me, uh, this wasn't Steve, this was somebody else, he said to me, don't pull my petals open, not ready yet. And um, it was such a great teaching to me how I do that to myself as well, not just to others. So I learned something that day that I'll never forget. This is, um, sometimes we find the most beautiful things on tea boxes. And I found this one on the Celestial Seasonings tea box from the Findhorn Garden. It says, flowers unfold slowly and gently, bit by bit, in the sunshine. And a heart, too, must never be pushed or driven, but unfold in its perfect timing to reveal its own true wonder and beauty. Well, just allowing, allowing things to be as they are in their unfolding.
I learned that patience is a willingness to wait um, and not to push things. The uh, thing that has meant a lot to me for a long time that I've imparted to many of you is the interview I heard with His Holiness the Dalai Lama when somebody asked him, if you've made progress in your, in your practice, they asked him. And he looked back and he said, when I think back one year ago, I think no, not much progress. Five years ago, little, little. 10 years ago, some practice, some progress. 20 years ago, yes, I can see I've made progress in my practice. And so I can say that too. I've been on the path more than 35 years and can see 20 years ago, from between now and 20 years ago, I can see some results in the practice. And many of you have been on the path for 20 years. And we can see we're not as reactive as we were before. There's a lot, there's a lessening of greed and hatred. Isn't that true? I mean, most of the time we're, we're self-deprecating. But let's, let's call it, let's call a heart a heart, a spade a spade. We are really making, uh, seeing results in our practice. But if we hang on, that's kind of steps backward. So what we discover is that the practice activates other virtuous qualities. Equanimity, for example. We're just more balanced when there's practice. It's the ability to rest the mind before it falls into extremes, not be so reactive to what's happening in our practice or happening with others around us. How's the, how's the, um, can you hear? Okay. So in India, the colloquial way of uh, translating equanimity is seeing with patience seeing with patience. It's like the regard we have for our elders, not all the time, but a lot of the times, the regard we have for our elders or the young ones in our life when we see them being in certain ways that we could have some impatience with, but we see a lot of uh, patience coming up in our hearts and our minds. We can see it with patience. So it supports equanimity. Um, constancy. It supports also constancy. I talked about that earlier. And when I was writing this talk, or an update on this talk, I, I reflected on the life of Aung San Suu Kyi. Do, do you all know who she is? One of the heroes of... Uh, of Burma or Myanmar. And um, she's the one that stands for the promise of true democracy in Burma. She's one of the most beautiful living examples of this gentle flowing strength called constancy. It's like a gentle flowing river that kind of goes around the rocks, that flows over the obstacles that kind of seeps under places where it seems really tight, but where water can get through. This is the nature of that gentle flowing strength and the nature of water. Water is 
stronger than any of the other qualities because it can really get in there, this gentle flowing strength. It has a quality of non-opposition because it doesn't push against what's happening but actually flows with what's happening. We're, we're more up to date than, than the common person of knowing what's going on in Burma. So we get news about Burma all the time from the underground and from the news that's able to come out of Burma. And so we've seen how she really works with the, the military that are there. She's, she's just the, the epitome of um, respect for herself. And so she gives that respect to others too. She sees the goodness. She's practiced metta, loving kindness, a lot when she was incarcerated in her home. And she's practiced uh, vipassana a lot too. In fact, one of her teachers is Upandita. So she's gathered a lot, I, I think it was her main teacher during all this time of incarceration. She's gathered a lot of strength and admiration and allies, even from the military. So she's been practicing uh, for many years. Uh, her spiritual practice has been our own practice. And as you know, some years ago, she was taken uh, to, to do some house, a long years of house arrest, around uh, 20 years of house arrest. And then some years ago, she was taken from her house arrest and incarcerated in a public prison. It's called insane prison, I-N-S-E-I-N, but it's kind of insane anyway. And she was put on trial for some ridiculous reason. And I'm not going to spend time going into that. But she was put on trial because of that. And it so happened that in, in that, uh, when she was put on trial, there was allowed to be some reporters there. And this one reporter, I think, came from the British Embassy and leaked out some news, or maybe it was even public. But I was really taken by this news that came from this reporter. She said, he said, that when Aung San Suu Kyi walked in to that courtroom, there were military men there that were so against her all these years. There were also members of the um, of judges that were there, members of the hierarchical political realm that were there. And when she walked in, she walked in with such dignity, such spiritual dignity, and with her head up high, and with goodwill towards all, a real depth of goodwill. Now I'm putting this on, it's not what the reporter said, but just from her practice and from reports from the inside that we get from her, just her very unconditional goodwill that's there. She w started walking to her chair, and people started standing up, including the military, including the, the judges and those people in the hierarchy of the uh, political realm there, and just really gave her such respect, put their hands together for her. She had this constancy, this patience, this enduring strength, to be with what was going on without opposition, 
without resistance, without fighting what was happening. That kind of respect that she had and metta that she had for herself and for all beings, without saying a word, you could feel it in the room. So there is this endurance, equanimity that patience activates. It activates on a deep level, um, letting go, letting go of ways that were not fair to ourselves, were not fair to others. And we, we really don't see clearly what needs to be let go of when we're unfair. But when we can come with a lot of patience, equanimity, constancy in our practice, on a deep level there can be this letting go of the forms of attachment, forms of aversion, letting go of the unwholesome and unnecessary in our lives, just like I spoke about in the metta practice today. Sometimes there can be such clear seeing of what is not needed at that moment. There can be such strong intention to just let it go. It's as if we know that we're holding a hot coal in our hands. We don't need to hold it. Just open the hand, let it go. So this is what can happen when this kind of deep renunciation can come from patience, from endurance, from seeing clearly what needs to be done. It's a way of deeply caring for ourselves when we do this. So there's this habit pattern of impatience in our practice and also in our lives. When we make the, just a very simple thing of when we make the to-do list more important than people in our lives. More important than connecting with our loved ones. And whenever I could see this happening in my own life, connecting with my loved ones was secondary to doing what I needed to accomplish on that to-do list. I really made it important to make uh, this understanding that it's just as important not to do as to do. So I'm sure a lot of you are in that place in your lives where you can easily cross out no need to do that. No need to really answer this email. Said is what had to be said. We don't need to make another remark. Or we don't need to go buy that thing or meet with this other person or business thing that is really not necessary. So making not to do as important as to do. So the to-do list became really to do or not to do. That is the question. <laughs> so there's uh, the experience I want to talk about that really awakened my sensitivity to this. And it was years ago, um, raising four children, there was an endless list of to-do things, an endless errand list, and one time, I had my, my mom with me, and she would come um, during the time Steve and I have been together, she would come for a month or six weeks, sometimes two months, and spend that time with us because um, we, we would have that time off, and that would be the right thing to do, to take time for our mom to be with us. So 
I usually took her to the grocery store. She was a very simple woman, and what she liked to do was she liked to cook for us. And what she wanted to do was go to the store and buy the ingredients as an act of generosity from herself. She would buy the ingredients and cook all these wonderful Filipino dishes for us. So I took her to the store, as I usually did, and one time there were, I had um, some of the children with me and we were doing errands, other errands. She was in her early 80s, probably maybe even her late 70s. Her body was strong, her mind was alert, but she was very slow. And with honesty, I can say that I was rushing her. I was being impatient. And, you know, until this day, I still have to forgive myself. I've gotten over the tears. Every once in a while they come. But I really feel um, a sense of healthy remorse about doing that. I know that basically I'm a good person, I'm a patient person, but it comes up sometimes. So we got in the car and I noticed after rushing her and then with some immediate remorse, I noticed that she was crying, that she had tears coming out of her eyes and she was dabbing her tears. And she, she spoke in a very simple way and I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, I'm shedding a tear. That's just the way she said it, because she had heard that phrase, you know. I'm shedding a tear. And I knew right away what went on, because I was really rushing her, and her legs couldn't keep up with me, you know, trying to get out the door. And so right away I said, I'm sorry, Mom. And you know, I shed a few tears on the way home too about that. She didn't complain and um, she never said a word about that. I mean, I think just from her age, she understood what it was to raise, uh, she had five children. I mean, what it was to raise all those children. And she really understood, but she felt rushed. And so I'm still, I still feel a lesson from that, from all these years. So the opportunities we have to practice patience are many small moments. You know, just like Suzuki Roshi said, never mind about the final goal. It's short moments many times that really make a difference. It's the events in our everyday life that show us the way that let it be known that we still have to practice patience and all the other beautiful qualities. It makes a huge difference when they add up. And even in that moment, it makes a huge difference to the other person or persons, to ourselves. It empowers our lives with habit patterns. Every moment of mindfulness, every moment of patience, makes that habit pattern come up again and again and again so that it becomes the default pattern of our lives. Steve said earlier today, and I, and I, and I wanted to get this out of him more, um, that it's not that, yes, it's true, we don't have any control over how the moment is arising because it's already arising in that way. 
but we do have some influence over how we can bring to the next moment wholesome qualities of mind by knowing what needs to be done by right view by knowing the uh, causes and conditions that lead to wholesome states of mind and to unwholesome states of mind refraining from the unwholesome nurturing the wholesome so every moment that we can make a new habit pattern it's powerful for the future in this moment we're creating our future so just the other day actually just before I did a revision of this talk for the forest refuge a friend sent me a true story probably many of you have heard of this story about a cab driver in Minneapolis have you heard the story of Kent Nurburn oh I'm surprised yeah it's such a beautiful story and I think it says a lot about patience in many ways at many levels he wrote this more than 15 years ago and I researched it and it's a true story so this is the story he wrote when he was a taxicab driver <clears throat> I arrived at the address and honked the horn this was at 2.30 in the morning. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about just driving away. But instead, I put the car in park and walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail, elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 40s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly down the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness it's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got to the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could we drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rear view mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city 
She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd asked me to go slow in front of a particular building or a corner and would sit staring into the darkness, stay, saying nothing. At the first hint of sun, as the sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in her wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of life. I didn't pick any more passengers up that shift. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver? Or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I refused to take the run or had honked once and then driven away? On quick review, I don't think I could have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. So I'll write the link up on the board. You'll probably ask for it. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.